it is good that everybody is here with us today to watch me do something that I swore to myself I would never do. And that is preach from the book of Revelation. Now, that's not entirely true. I did say that I would preach from the book of Revelation uh, on my way out of town, uh, essentially. That, that I would uh, retire, uh, announce my retirement, preach through Revelation, and then leave while all of you say, what have you done with Revelation? So uh, why have I changed my mind about that? Well, I've changed my mind because I think the message, the message of Revelation is uniquely important to us in the times in which we live. I believe what it says. I've just been reluctant to talk about it because having an intelligent discussion about it uh, as a church on a Sunday morning, I, I had always felt was going to be difficult, if not impossible. The reason for that being is that most of us have not really studied the book. We have instead believed what we have been told about the book. So essentially, our beliefs about this book are simply us parroting what other people have said about the book. And we don't understand, by and large, in churches like ours, that conservative scholars have long held a variety of views as to how to view Revelation. And by that, I mean how to time everything out. So um, we, we tend to have only heard one part of all of that. Now, to be sure, we have heard that one part in the hands of godly and competent men like, like John MacArthur and like uh, uh, um, somebody else, David Jeremiah and uh, Charles Swindoll, who's my favorite uh, preacher, really, of all time. We've heard from these guys uh, that one view done very, very well. But let's be honest, we have also heard it pretty sloppily done by people on the internet whose only qualification for teaching God's Word is they have an internet connection. And because of that, uh, we have a lot of really muddled thinking when it comes to this book. And the purpose of this book, believe it or not, is not what many of these other kinds of preachers attribute it to. It is not merely to satisfy our curiosity about the end. It is not in existence so that we can run down some speculative rabbit hole because we have enough time and because we have enough money and we have enough peace to be able to do so. The book actually is written to us to a church that was beleaguered, a church that was experiencing extraordinary persecution to remind them that Jesus was king to encourage them going through all of their difficulty that they had not been forgotten, that God had every intent of fulfilling his purposes for them, and that Jesus would return for them as king. And it's that encouragement and that assurance that I think is so important for us as a church in 2020 America. And the basis of that assurance, of that assurance is Jesus Christ himself, which we will see today as we begin our journey. So if you would please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 on both campuses, Revelation chapter 1. Let me tell you how all this will go down, all right, so you can time it out. We won't be able to time out everything that's going to happen at the end, but we can give timing on how the sermon will flow, this sermon series will flow. We will have uh, our, a look at the seven churches after today, and that will take us into November. We'll take a break. We'll come back for the visions from chapter 4 on that will take us through Palm Sunday. One last thing. Some of you right now are saying, why is he preaching so early? Is this going to be a really long sermon? No. 
it's not going to be a really long sermon. But today we're going to do something differently. Normally, worship through singing prepares us worship through the word. Today, worship through the word is going to prepare us for worship through singing. All right? So everything's going to be a little out of order today. Everybody will be okay. All right? Why don't you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to do something that uh, we rarely do. We're going to read an entire chapter um, because I want us to see all of this as a majestic whole. So we will begin in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, which we are doing. And blessed are those who hear and, who's, uh, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen." Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard before me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But I laid... But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, are the seven churches. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Revelation chapter 1, let's look at it like it's a pie. And there are four big pieces of this pie. And the goodness in every single piece is Jesus himself. The first three verses function as the prologue of the book, and they celebrate Jesus' engagement with the world. The book is Christ's revelation. 
The first word of the book in the language in which John gave it to us is the word apocalypsis. We normally translate that word as apocalypse. That's where we get our English word. But it's translated here into our English Bibles as revelation because the word itself refers to something being revealed or being made known. The idea being that without this act of apocalypsis, that which is being revealed would have never been known. Humans couldn't have figured it out themselves. It took a divine act, penetrating history, for these things to be made known. Jesus, then, we're told in the very first words of the book, is acting to make his purposes known. He does not intend for his people to grope around in the darkness and in fear. He acts to reveal his will going forward. He's engaged with the world, in other words. He is not disconnected from its troubles. And lest anyone doubt that Jesus is engaged in the world, John offers himself as proof. He says that, that I am an apostle. I'm, a, I'm one of the ones who, who followed Jesus. As he said over and over again in the letters of John, in, in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, he was one who had seen Jesus with his eyes and heard Jesus with his ears and touched Jesus with his hands. He, by his own testimony, could say, God has not abandoned his world. He has sent himself in Jesus Christ to redeem us to our, uh, our Lord and our God. So this first piece of the, the chapter celebrates Jesus' engagement. The second piece celebrates Jesus' awesome power and majesty. In fact, verses 4 through 8, quite frankly, may be the most triumphant Christological verses in all of the Bible. You're going to become very familiar with it because we are going to be quoting a large section of that at the end of every worship service. You thought that I've given you long ones before. You're going to need to hydrate by the time you're done saying this at the end because it is so full of wonder and joy. These verses extol the Trinitarian nature of Jesus Christ. The blessing that begins the letter is rooted in the nature of God as Father, God as Spirit, God as Son in that order. The hymn of verse 4 is the Father, and the seven spirits before the throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. You will find some debate on that. I think, though, in context, it makes sense that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit because then we go on to see that Jesus is the faithful witness, meaning that he has faithfully discharged the will of his Father. And as a result of discharging the will of his Father, he had conquered death and he had been enthroned as the supreme ruler of all the cosmos. Then John says that this king, Jesus, has made his followers a kingdom by virtue of that sacrifice. And that this king would return to the rejoicing of those who followed him and to the horror of those who have rejected him. And that this king is the A to Z king. There is no one like him. He is Lord over all. And while we're dull to that in the 21st century church, a beleaguered first century church would have seen a mic drop because they lived in a world where someone else was making that claim. They lived in a world where Caesar made the claim to be the preeminent ruler. Almost all of the Caesars who had reigned to this point had in some way accepted a claim of deity. Usually, though, they said, you can start to call me a god 
and worship me as a God after I die, which is kind of funny, really, you know. After I die, which seems to be a very ungodlike thing to do, you can worship me as a God. But I digress. When we got to this time, there was one Caesar who had taken it next level. His name was Diocletian. And he was demanding, while he was alive, to be worshipped as a god. Now, Christians were a demographic blip on the radar at this time, of no consequence to anyone. But anyone who refused to acknowledge Caesar as king and God became an enemy of the state. And they were undergoing trial and were about to undergo more. And it is this trial, this persecution, this tribulation that serves as the backdrop against which the entire book is painted. Diocletian held power over their lives. These Christians to whom this book was addressed that felt godlike and followers of Jesus were so small in number at the time and so socially insignificant that they felt at the complete mercy of the government and felt at the complete mercy of earthly circumstances. But John here in verses 4 through 8 is reminding them that their worry and their helplessness was misguided because that Yehu's not king, Jesus is. The first and the last, the one who rules all, is the one that you follow and give your allegiance to. The third big piece of Revelation 1 is the introduction of the book proper, and it's really a celebration of the imminent presence of Jesus with his church. John tells us, that he was on the small Greek island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, and he says that he was there on account of the Word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ, which probably means that he was there in a prison work camp because refusing to say Caesar was king had made him an enemy of the state. So he's in prison. And on the Lord's Day, Sunday, he heard a thunderous voice commanding him to make record of the visions that he was about to see and to send them to a group of seven churches. Why these seven churches? Well, in all likelihood, they were the most prominent churches, at least in the region and maybe in Christendom at the time. The seven most prominent churches write to them. But the number seven is a, is a, is a reference to perfection. And so, most scholars take from that is that it's not meant for just these seven churches only. It's meant for the church universal. So all of Christendom, all of Christians who will ever live from this point forward will benefit from this book. And when he turns to see the speaker who is commanding him to write this letter, what he sees stretches the boundaries of his language to describe. So he does it in images and symbols that celebrate Jesus' grip on the church. John tells us he sees seven lampstands, which we find out later are are the seven churches that are being written to. And in the midst of them, don't miss this picture, in the midst of them stood Jesus. Where his people are, there he is. Jesus is not apart from the church. Let me Take a side note here from my notes. The first century church suffered from a where is Jesus complex. When's he coming back? 
I mean, the emperor Diocletian is, is pressing in on us, and we're going to lose our lives, some of us. When's Jesus coming back? Why has he left us? The 21st century church suffers in the same kind of way, at least in the West. Where's Jesus? Does he not see <laughs> how we're being inconvenienced? But we'll call it persecution because we're used to everything going our way. Does he not see what we are struggling with? Where's Jesus? And John answers it for us, doesn't he? Right in the middle of the church. Jesus is in the middle of his church. He's in the midst of his people. He's not gone anywhere. Spiritually, the ultimate reality is that Jesus is present with the church. There will come a day where he will return physically, where every eye will see the, the, the king that they crucified. The book starts with that, that eruption of praise. But just because he hasn't returned physically doesn't mean he's absent from the church. He is not apart from the church. And that's an incredible thing when we understand exactly who he is. And it's here where we get to learn our first lesson about how to read this book. There is a tendency when we read the book to overanalyze and overinterpret images. Generally, when we are meant to understand something specifically, God, through the angel, through John, will tell us this is what that means. He does that in the last verse. Typically, we are told. But but generally, if we try to start to overanalyze all of these images, it can take us further away from the picture that it's really meant to, to present. I saw one author say this, and I agree with it. A lot of times what passes for Bible study of the book of Revelation is an attempt to unweave the rainbow. We, we, we just need to see the rainbow, but we're too busy. What does red mean? What does yellow mean? What does blue mean? Well, he'll tell us. I mean, if we, need to, if we need to know that, he'll tell us. But what we're meant to do is just take it all in. And if we take all of this in, the first century church was not saying, ooh, what does the sash mean? What about the long robe? What about the hair? They're not saying, they're saying when they get that picture, oh, I know who talked to, I know who talked to John. God talked to, talked to John. Jesus is God. And the, the encouragement that that represents, Jesus is just not some spiritual being who came from God. He is God, and he's in the midst of the church. John's audience would have been very familiar with these images, and they would have understood immediately the descriptions of Christ were communicating that he was the I am. And this God, not Diocletian, was the one who held power over the church. Now, I said when John is meant to communicate something very specific about an image, that he'll do it. God will say, John, this is what this means. And so, when we get to verse 20, we see that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. We get that. But then it says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And there we're going to have to guess a little bit. Because we actually struggle to know exactly what is meant by that. So what I'm about to share with you, I share with great humility. I'm not saying this is a final answer. But generally in Revelation, and by generally I mean as far as I can tell all the time, angels in Revelation represent angels. They don't represent people. And there is a system of thought that think that the angels being spoken of here are the pastors. Well, my mom calls me an angel, 
No one else does, all right? I don't think the, I don't think the book of Revelation is calling an angel. I think what the angel here represents is the spiritual reality of a church which exists in heaven. I think if we can take anything from it, what we are being shown here is that there is a spiritual manifestation of the local body of Christ that is Blue Valley Baptist Church and Grace Church and Redeemer Presbyterian and any church that claims the name of Jesus that is represented in heaven. And the picture that really we're supposed to grab there is that that spiritual representation of the church is in the hand of Jesus. So Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the midst of the churches. He also holds the church in his hand. I don't believe it's speaking of a guardian angel of a church. I think it's just speaking of the spiritual reality of the church. And God, through Christ, is keeping them. Right hand of power, protecting the church. And all of this literally floors John. He falls down as if he were dead. He's overwhelmed by the awesome vision of the resurrected Jesus. So Jesus speaks again. And in so doing, we get to see the last aspect of Christ's goodness here. We've celebrated his engagement with the world. We've celebrated his power, his majesty, his glory. We've celebrated his imminent presence with the church. And now we celebrate his final authority over all the world. To a church that is harried and on the edge of hopelessness at the prospect of world events, Jesus says, fear not. Fear not, church. Fear not seven churches who are living in a world where you are being forced to make a decision many times with your life in the balance between saying Diocletian is God or Jesus is God. Fear not. Jesus is the one who holds the keys to life and death. This means that he has final authority over the universe in which we live and that nothing can happen apart from his will. Jesus is the final authority over all things. So the church, terrified, and as we'll see in coming weeks, rough around the edges, has been called to fix their gaze on Jesus and see his engagement, see his power and majesty, see his imminent presence with the church, and see his final authority over all the world. And with that picture fixed in their minds, John will instruct them to clean up their act and then give visions that follow, that demonstrate they should quit wringing their hands and wasting their time of worrying about everything that they see happening in the world. Instead, they should understand that, yes, hard times will come. Yes, maybe the hardest of times will come, but Jesus will have the final say. And nothing is going to stop any of that from happening. So the message of Revelation, relevant as it was all those centuries ago, is relevant today. And here's the message. Church, chill. Don't pretend that everything's going to be okay in the Western sense. It may get hard. It may get deadly. But what's real? The one who holds the power of death and Hades in his hands. That's what's real. And that's what matters. And that's what 
last. So, what should we see here to encourage us to chill? First, we need to see that Christ is committed to his purposes. I believe the Bible teaches that God has final authority over everything that happens in our universe down to the movement of atoms. And I don't think that absolves any of us of any personal responsibility. The church and the churches are are, are in, commanded to take personal responsibility in the letters that follow. But I do think that understanding of God having final authority over all things should help us see that history is unfolding according to a divine plan. The function of this realization in the lives of the world of the seven churches was to minimize their panic. And we need to do the same. Because I'm afraid that the church in America is known more for our hysteria than our confidence. I routinely see folks post or listen to folks talk or read emails sent to me about the dire situation of the church, but every single time that happens, we are betraying a shallow understanding of history, an overinflated view of man's power, and a woefully underdeveloped view of the power and majesty and authority of Christ Jesus. So stop and think about what you're communicating to the world, about your real belief in Christ when you post or forward or rant hysterically. And just stop and remember uh, the picture of who is really in control. Democrats aren't in control. Republicans aren't in control. You aren't in control. I'm not in control. But there is one who is. And he is committed to bringing about his will. And there is literally nothing that's going to stop it or hasten it. Everything is moving according to his plan, and there will come a day when every eye will see him, even the eyes of those who pierced him. So you do your civic duty to the best of your ability as citizens of a world and country to which you ultimately don't belong, but take courage in the knowledge that Christ is committed to his purposes, and everything is marching according to plan. Then also, take courage and comfort in the knowledge that Christ is committed to his church. He's in the midst of the church. He holds the church in his right hand. The seven churches needed to see this so they wouldn't give in to the satanic thought that maybe Diocletian held the church in his hands. Just like we need to see that Republicans and Democrats don't hold the church in their hands and the president, whoever it is, doesn't hold the church in his or her hands. Any place we put our confidence as a church that isn't Christ is misplaced, and frankly, it's idolatry. Christ is committed to his church. He will return for us, and he will vindicate himself by preserving us. Christ is committed to his church. And there is an easily overlooked picture here that we also need to remember. Christ is committed to his church, but he's also committed to the individual's that make up the church. Picture of Christ in the lampstands and holding the churches in his right hand gets the most press in Revelation 1. We've spent a lot of time there. But don't miss that when John falters, Jesus reaches out with that same right hand to strengthen him and to set him back on his feet and move him forward on his mission. Christ at once holds the churches and holds individual Christians. He holds you. And maybe you're going through your own personal apocalypsis right now. And maybe you've lost sight of that. Because of some pain or some diagnosis 
or some trouble that nobody else knows about. And you think, well, I, I get that Jesus does the big stuff. But he's a specialist in you as well. Just as intimately as he knows the very second of the progression of human history, he knows the very seconds of your life, the very hairs on your head. And it would be easy for us to lose sight of that as individuals and be discouraged. But listen, Jesus never loses sight of his children. So chill. Don't panic. Take courage by seeing Christ. And let's jointly participate in seeing Christ now in worship, in that hope that maybe we can be encouraged to see things as they really are as we worship on both campuses now.